this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. Sunet had a, a, a word um, during the worship that, that God wants to to really break open his word for us, um, that he wants us to, to be able to understand his word. And, um, you know, th- that uh, s- sometimes some of us come to him when we read our, uh, the, our Bibles at home and we don't, we don't un- quite understand what's going on. It doesn't quite make sense to us. And uh, um, it, um, it doesn't all fit into place. And w- what God wants to do is God wants to teach us. God doesn't want to give us a quick fix where we just, you know, quickly without any process, um, learn to understand His Word. He wants to teach us to be able to understand His Word through His Word and His Spirit. And therefore, I just want to commend you for being here this morning as well because this is part of how you learn to understand God's Word correctly is by coming and listening to, to the preaching of the Word. Um, so, you know, I want to just encourage you, those of you who have been walking with the Lord for years now, um, you'll know that as you go on, as you listen to more sermons, as you read, keep reading the Word more and more, it's like God starts opening up more and more of it to you, and you start understanding more and more of it. Uh, and it, it, comes, it becomes easier. Uh, and, and things that were a mystery to you all of a sudden open up to you, and, and, and you really understand it. Um, I remember... Um, one day I was in, in Randfontein. It was just the year after I matriculated in, what would that be, 95? <laughs> in 1995. And uh, I was doing sort of a, uh, what they call exposure year um, at the mines, working at the mines. I, I got a bursary for chemical engineering. And I remember walking to church um, over this, I, I remember it was over this, railway bridge. I was walking over and I was thinking about that scripture in John 4. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well and worshipping in spirit and in truth. I was thinking what on earth does that mean? And I I really didn't understand. It was just like, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. And it's just um, so nice to me. Um, You know, recently I I helped record uh, the school of worship and and the the theme of the school of worship is um, spirit and truth. And I did a, a session, two sessions actually, on theology of worship where I spoke about that very verse. And it was just nice to me. And God reminded me of that experience of walking across that bridge and thinking, what does it mean? And trying to figure out what it means and just not understanding it, you know, and being able to look back years later and see, okay, well, God has actually revealed it to me. God has actually explained it to me. I really do understand it now to a much greater degree than, than before. So I just want to encourage you, don't give up. On God's word, just because you don't understand it when you read it, keep on reading it. Um, the better you understand, the better you know all of God's word, the better you'll understand the different portions of God's word. The better you see the big picture of the puzzle, the better you'll understand where all the little puzzle pieces fit in. And God, I think the encouragement that God gave to Sunet was God really does want to speak to you through his word. He really does. Don't think that God is trying to make his word obscure to you. He's really wanting to speak to you through his word. And I really sense that this is a season in which God wants to speak to all of us. I mean, part of what I'm going to be preaching about this morning is, is the fact that we are a holy priesthood. All of us are priests unto God. And therefore, all of us need to hear the word of God and be able to share the word of God. Because that was one of the functions of the priests. Amen. 
Okay, so um, I want to share, um, go on with this, this series I've been going on for quite a while on, on God's building. And, and last time I shared from 1 Peter 2, and I sort of got halfway. So I just want to complete that. Um, and in 1 Peter 2, uh, 1, verse 23, I'm just going to read a couple of verses there and, and skip some verses as well. Uh, it, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And then chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then verse 4 says, as you come to him, that's to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, through Jesus Christ. And I was um, saying that um, in verse 4 and 5, it says we must come to him, and then we must become like him. He's a living stone. We, we, we become living stones as we become like him. And then we are built into a spiritual house. And then we offer spiritual sacrifices. So just to, to quickly recap, uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. I've been, since our baby was born three weeks ago, I, didn't, I haven't been preaching for a while. So um, it's probably about a month ago or so. Um, I just want to quickly recap some thoughts. The first step is come to him and, and and one of the ways in which or the, the way the main way in which you come to him is by being born again being born again in other words when you come to Jesus you don't come as a visitor when you come to Jesus you come as family you you come to him by becoming part of his family by being born again into his family so the coming there I mean come can be a sort of a very ordinary word oh, I I come to you, but it doesn't mean any kind of relationship to, uh, to, to you when I come to you. But in this context, when he says come, it means the most intimate kind of relationship possible. It's coming to become part of his family. And, and notice that it's a, it's, it's, it's a spiritual birth. And then becoming like him, living stones, it says as newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk. So that by it you may grow up into uh, your salvation. Growing up into your salvation means growing up into maturity. Growing up to become like Jesus. Okay, how do you do that? By craving the pure spiritual milk. Which includes the, the milk of his word. And understanding it. God wants, wants you, you to, to, to drink from his word. But, but through his word he really wants you to experience him. And that's why the next verse says, Since you have tasted that the Lord is good. One of the ways in which you can feed on God himself is um, through his word. And, and um, to me, this, um, obviously, with our son being born three weeks ago, this, you know, like newborn babes crave <laughs> the pure spiritual milk has become sort of very vivid to me because, man, Ethan craves that milk and he, he screams. He, put up, so, he puts up a fine voice when, when he wants that milk. You know, he, wa he wants to taste <laughs> that his mother is good. <laughs> well, he has tasted that his mother is good and therefore he craves. <laughs> he, he craves that milk from the one from whom he was born. And when, when we are newborn babies, when we are born again into God's kingdom like newborn babies, we crave the milk, the taste of the one from whom we are born, from whom we are birthed. 
And um, <clears throat> it's interesting to me, I don't know who of you have seen a newborn baby, even those of you who haven't had babies yourselves have probably seen newborn babies, but they, they, God has given babies certain reflex, certain instincts that they do automatically. And one of them is a searching instinct. The babies can actually smell the milk. You know, sometimes, um, you know, in some hospitals or whatever, they'll put the baby on the mother's, just after it's born, right when it comes out of the womb, onto the mom's tummy. And then the baby would be close to the breast and actually smell the milk and actually, you know, move towards the breast and, uh, and, and seek it. Um, if, 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 the baby, if it touch a baby's cheek, it goes like this. <laughs> because when it feels something against its cheek, it, it searches for the breast. Because it's, it's one thing, it's a reflex. It does it automatically, you know. Go, go, go and try it <laughs> on, a, on a newborn baby. It's, it's, especially when they're hungry. When they're hungry, you, you just touch their chicken and go, oh, I guess, you know. Ah. <laughs> Open their mouth and they start searching. So there's that searching reflex. But then there's also the sucking and the swallowing reflex. They, they, it, it's automatic. When they, when they get something in their mouth, anything in their mouth, you know, you you know, you put your finger in a baby's mouth and it starts sucking. Because it's a reflex. It's, it's, they don't have to think about it. God designed it that way. And then when they suck, they immediately swallow. So search, suck, and swallow are reflexes that God has given to newborn babies. And to me, that is one of the surest signs that someone has been born again. When I see that search, suck, and swallow reflex. When they crave the pure spiritual milk. When I don't see that in someone's life, then I wonder whether, they've really, when they re, whether they're really a newborn baby, whether they've really been born again into God's kingdom. Just another thing that I want to um, encourage you to do, you know, go and search on, go and Google, you know, breast milk and, and the benefits of breast milk. And you'll see it's amazing how God has designed breast milk. Uh, in the beginning, the first couple of days, two or three days, there's the colostrum, which is a thick, like, yellowish kind of milk, but it's, it's, it's loaded, because a baby's tummy is small, man, it's like a marble when they're born, like a marble, am I right, Scarpa? A little bigger than a marble, okay, but, but it's, it's kind of small, you know, so, so you have this, this really thick, uh, you know, intense um, colostrum that, that has all this amazing nourishment that the baby needs and and if a baby you know as, as it feeds on on its mother's milk you know babies that feed on on, on their mother's milk are are, are more immunized because they they share in the mother's immune system they, they they're less likely to get allergies it's it's as though you know the the milk and whatever's in the milk lines you know their, their tummies and all that kind of stuff amazing things that happen through breast milk you know you know, you know this the same thing happens with god when we as newborn babes crave this pure spiritual milk through his word, the Bible, through the gospel, we, we drink from him as it were. Metaphorically from his breast. From, from you know, he, what, what, it, what is him becomes part of us. And it's so good for us. It meets all our needs. Just like that, that breast milk. I mean, the baby needs nothing else. Nothing else. Everything the baby needs, everything that's best for the baby is in that, in that breast milk. And everything that's best for us, everything that we need spiritually, is in the pure spiritual milk that, that comes from God. So come to Him, become like Him, and then be built into a spiritual house. Um, 
and, and offer spiritual sacrifice. Those are the two I want to focus on um, today as I continue sharing. I just want you to notice one thing while we're still on that slide. Notice in each one of those four points, I underline the word spiritual. The new birth, born again, is a spiritual birth. We grow up and become like him by drinking the spiritual milk. We are built into a spiritual house and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Can you see that? Can you see that um, connection there? Okay, so we are being built into a spiritual house. And um, I just want you to notice, um, and I I didn't see this until I read this one commentary and and this lady, uh, Karen Jobs, who's writing the commentary, actually mentioned this. And and then I saw it for the first time. I just want to read that. That scripture for you. The, the next verses, verse 6 and 7, it says, um, For the scripture says, that's just after it talks about us being built into a spiritual house and offering spiritual sacrifices um, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, I, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you believe, verse 7, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, what I want you to notice, and what she said there is, notice that there are two building projects going on here in this passage. Firstly, it says, see, I lay a cornerstone in Zion. In other words, there's God as the builder laying a foundation and building. And then in the next verse, it says, the stones that the builders rejected. So there are other builders And they reject the cornerstone that God has laid. So there's a divine building program and there's a human building program. And they are contrary to one another. They're in opposition to one another. And God is saying, you're part of my building project. And it's a spiritual house that I'm building. And and here's the thing. There are other builders. God is building, but there are other builders. You're either being built by God or you're being built by someone else. You're either being built by God into the spiritual house or you're, built by, you're being built by um, someone else in a way that actually rejects what God is doing. Can you see that? Um, it says the, the, the cornerstone was laid by God and precious to him, but that same cornerstone, the very same cornerstone that was laid by God in Zion and, and, and just by the way, I find that such a beautiful picture. Jesus as the cornerstone being laid in Zion. And, and we know that the, the laying of the cornerstone was, was Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And, 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 and a foundation. The thing about a foundation, when you look at a building, you don't see its foundation. Why? Because it's underground. Can you make the connection between the, his death and his burial? The cornerstone being put underground. Um, and then notice that it's a spiritual house. We're b- being built into a spiritual house. And I made this point last time uh, briefly as well. Not a, it's not a physical house. They're, so often in our speaking culture, our ch- uh, Christian culture, we speak about going to church. And, and you know, it's, it's become part of common language, and, but actually it's not right. You see, the, the church throughout the ages always falls into this trap of, of focusing on the spiritual house, which God is focused on and which God is building and which Peter is talking about here, to moving the focus, getting distracted to the physical building. You see, we start off and we say, we are the church. We are the living stones. We, the living stones, we are the church. 
And then later on, you know, you know, as as you know, more and more nominal Christians become part of a, a congregation or a denomination or something, it becomes, um, you know, we we belong to the church. And the church, instead of being seen as us, the people, is seen as the denomination. Now we belong to the church. We belong to this church or that church. And then the final step is we go to church or we attend church. And the church becomes the building. From church being the people, there's the slide down to church being the denomination to church being the building. And, 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 and you can see it. I know all of you have seen that when you've spoken to other Christians. Um, and, and maybe that's frustrated you um, about it because you've realized, but hang on, I don't just go to church. I don't just belong to a church. I am the church. We are the church. Um, and then the other point I made was in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, it, it talks about, you know, to... Um, Peter says, and Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, you know, the amazing thing is God's house, which was in Jerusalem, the temple, was centralized in Jerusalem. That was the only place you could go to the worship. That was the only place you could go to make sacrifices. God says so in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. He says, no other place are you allowed to make sacrifices. Only the place where I put my name, the temple. Well, first the tabernacle and then eventually when it was built the temple. That's the only place you may make sacrifices. And here, Peter's talking about spiritual sacrifices being made in a spiritual house but where is that spiritual house? The living stones of that spiritual house is scattered across the world. In all kinds of Roman provinces, even up to South Africa. It's a, it's a temple that has been radically decentralized. A temple that literally covers the earth. A spiritual house that covers the earth. Now you don't have to go to Jerusalem or to Mecca or some place to bring sacrifices. You are the temple. We are the temple. And we can make spiritual sacrifices wherever we are. And that's so powerful, um, I think. Then also, it's, it, uh, we are built into a spiritual house. Notice that we are being built. Notice that it's a, a present, continuous process. Because this spiritual house is being built by a living stone, it's actually it's like a living house. <laughs> Okay? It's like a living house that is constantly growing, that is constantly being added to, that is constantly expanding. It's not static, it's dynamic. It's growing, it's alive. <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> and then, um, actually, I thought I wanted to put a picture up of this, but I forgot about it. But uh, last time, just to sort of connect it with a culture, I, I spoke about, you know, that. Uh, don't, that saying that people often use, don't be just another brick in the wall. You all know, well, some of you will know the Pink Floyd song. All in all, you're just another brick in the wall. You know, if you know it, it portrays your age, you know, because it's an old song already. <laughs> but I, I actually just use that to connect it to the culture and, and the fact that people don't want to conform. People don't want to be part of a wall. They want to, want to be built in a wall. But, but actually, it's, it's slightly wrong. This temple is not built of dead bricks. It's built out of living stones. Now what's the difference between a stone and a brick? A brick is made in a specific mold. All bricks look the same. Do all stones look the same? 
No, 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 no. I mean, I look up uh, over you guys at you like very different. All of you. I mean, I mean, not just physically. I mean, psychologically, spiritually, in every single way, you're different. You're not bricks. You're not just you know, clay put into a mold and make to look exactly the same. You're not mass-produced. You're tailor-made. You're unique, each one of you. But that creates a problem. I mean, we, we don't know stone building anymore because what he's talking about here is not building, you know, taking bricks and putting, you know, cement mortar in it and, and building the bricks into each other because they fit so nicely into each other. Stones don't fit nicely into each other. In those days, with stone building, you had to take the stones and you had to chisel away the rough edges. And then you had to find other stones that fit with it. And they didn't actually build with cement. The weight of the bricks actually kept the building together, kept the walls together. But the master builder, the mason, would take that unique stone and he'd chisel away the rough edges so that it fitted exactly with other stones. Guess what? You're tailor-made for the place that God has given you in his church. And you're not cemented in. If, if you're built like a living stone into God's spiritual house, then it means that, that, that God is chiseling away. And some of you have experienced this, and that's what Stefan was all talk, talking about, the discipline of the Lord. Sometimes that's chiseling away that rough, those rough edges so that you'll fit in with what God wants to do in your life, with how he wants you to function in his spiritual house. And if you're truly built into God's spiritual house, you're a living stone built into God's spiritual house, then your weight rests on living stones underneath you, and they are the weight of living stones above you that rests on you. So that if you're taken out, others fall out. If you are taken out, others fall out, because others depend on you. It's not the cement holding you together, it's that fit that God has made. Are you slotted into God's church in such a way that you are putting your weight, metaphorically speaking, on other living stones, and that there are other living stones that can put their weight on you? Are you allowing the master mason to chip away your rough edges so that you fit exactly into the place that he has chosen for you to be into his, in his spiritual house? That's the challenge to us. Then there's another interesting thing, and I was actually thinking, should I share this? Because it says we, we are being built. Now, the, the question is, by whom are you being built? Are you being built by the builders who rejected the cornerstone? Are you being built, built by God who lays the cornerstone? But it says we are being built, and it says in the English translations, it usually says into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to make spiritual sacrifice and so on. But there's, there's something strange going on there in the, in the Greek grammar that you can't actually see in the English. Um, it, it says we are living stones. Um, I actually uh, thought, you know, should I share this? Because it's a little bit technical, but I, I, do, think, um, I do think it's important um, because you can't really see it in the English. In, in Greek, let me, you don't have to remember the details. But I just want to explain something about Greek. In Greek, word order doesn't matter. I mean, in English, you know, I kick the ball. You know the ball is, is, is the object. I am the subject. I'm doing the kicking. Why? Because I am before kicked. So you, the, 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 the verb performing the action you put it before 
um, the verb. In Greek, it doesn't matter which way around you put it, because all the, the, the words, you know, the nouns and stuff have, have little endings that tell you whether it's doing the action or whether it's receiving the action and so on. So you can, you can swap around, you can mix up the word order completely, and, and they do, you know, because the actual word tells you what, it, what its function is in, in, this, in the sentence. Now, the, the, the nominative, you don't have to remember the word, but the nominative um, noun is the one performing the action. Now, here's the, the strange thing. It says, as living stones, it, which is in the nominative, you are being built, and then spiritual house is also in the nominative. So, I mean, what's going on here? What's going on here? Can I tell you what's going on? The spiritual house that is the product of the building is part of the building process. God builds his building through his building. Does that make sense? That's why the spiritual house is also in the nominative. Um, and and there's, just look up on the screen. Ephesians 4 verse 15 and 16 says a similar thing. It says, speaking the truth in love, you will in everything grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Become like him, grow, growing up, growing up in our salvation. And then verse 16 says, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Can you see that? And, and, and I think that's why the spiritual house, even though it's in a sense the object and it's, it's the thing that is being built, it's the product of the, the process of building, it is also part of the action of building. Because it builds itself up. In other words, in God's building project versus the world's building project, God builds, but he builds through you and me. God builds, but he builds through us. We have the privilege of being part of building God's spiritual house. And he talks about, we built, and he switches sort of metaphors from a spiritual building, the temple, to a, to a holy priesthood. Um, and, and that's one of the main verses where the reformers got this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Because those of you who know a bit of church history will know that in the early church, I mean, every member was involved intimately and actively involved. Go and read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Actively involved in ministry. But then as things went on, the, 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 the focus shifted away from the members ministering to the mentors ministering, like I put it in a, in a previous sermon. The, 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 you, you got priests who ministered, bishops. You got pastors and, 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 and uh, you know, both from, from the side of the leadership and from the members, it was like, oh, it's, it's easier to receive. So we'll sit back. Oh, you know, we are the professional ministers, so we'll do the ministry. And eventually, they became known as priests. Even though it says every living stone that is built into the spiritual house is a holy priest. The priesthood of all believers. It became in the Middle Ages, in the, in the, in the Middle Age Catholic Church, um, and it's still today like that in the Catholic Church. You, you talk, you don't, the Catholic uh, Church don't talk about pastors. They talk about priests. Even the Anglican Church. And I, I've got a lot of, uh, quite a few Anglican friends, and I, and I really love them. But, but this is one thing I don't agree with them. I say, why do you call the ministers priests? That denies that the members are priests. Or it seems to deny that the members are priests. And, and what happened was more and more the priests, the professional ministers, took over the ministry. And more and more it forced the, the rest to sort of sit back and do nothing. 
And, and, and this verse says it should not be so. It should not be so. Every member is a minister. It's the, and that was the truth, one of the main truths that was recovered in the Reformation. The priesthood of all believers. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a priest. And not only are you a priest, you're a holy priest. We're a holy priesthood. We're a holy priesthood. Your, if your husband and your wife looks at you like this, like, holy? Really? <laughs> um, and that's why in verse 9, uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, Peter says, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And actually what he's referring to is Exodus 19. It's all up there on the screen. I'm just going to read it quickly. It says, this is what you are to say. God speaking to Moses says, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. Notice the house of Jacob, spiritual house. So the house language comes from that text as well. And then he, um, he says, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That was the coming. Our coming to him is his doing. Okay, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Can you see that, where that language of a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a, a, a holy priesthood comes from? It comes from Exodus 19. All along, that was God's plan for Israel, the old covenant people of God, and obviously it's for us, the new covenant people of God. But the problem was, the previous verse, verse 5, it says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. The problem was why Israel was never fully a kingdom of priests. And, and just by the way, a priest mediates. So if Israel was a nation of priests, between whom did they mediate? Between God and the nations. Right? But why they never fully got that right is because they couldn't fully obey and they couldn't keep the covenant. That was the problem. The, their problem was they couldn't be a holy priesthood. They were called to be a priesthood. And they were called to be a holy priesthood, but they didn't fully have what it took in themselves to be a holy priesthood, to obey fully and to keep the covenant. And the problem, the problem that Israel had is solved for us, the church, in Christ. In Christ, we can actually be a holy priesthood. Because what we could not do, Christ did for us. Just like Israel, we cannot fully obey, but Christ has fully obeyed. Just like Israel, we cannot keep the covenant perfectly, but Christ has kept the covenant perfectly. And therefore, if we are in Christ, we are a holy priesthood. We are a holy priesthood. We are what Israel was supposed to be. Okay, I just want to focus for a while on this whole thing of spiritual sacrifices. We are being built as a, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And, and the, just see the picture here of the temple. The temple has priests in. The priests make sacrifices. That was common language of the time. Um, and, and the interesting thing is it says we are all of those. We are the temple. We are the priests. We are the sacrifices, as we're going to see in a moment. 
So spiritual sacrifices can only be made in a spiritual house. I think that's kind of important. Spiritual sacrifices can only be made in a spiritual house. In other words, those acceptable spiritual sacrifices in Christ Jesus, there are no acceptable spiritual sacrifices in Christ Jesus apart from the church. And I, and I mean church with a capital letter. I don't mean the church, Shofar Joburg or Shofar even. I mean church, the church globally. It's only in the church globally as God's spiritual house that you can actually make spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. And there are so many people, especially in our postmodern times in the Western world, who try to live Christian lives and make spiritual sacrifices apart from the spiritual house. Who want to reject the spiritual house but still make the spiritual sacrifices. You can't. It's impossible. The only acceptable biblical context for making spiritual sacrifices is the spiritual house, the church. That's how important it is. It's God's building. In a sense, in, in the natural, it looks imperfect. But in Christ, one day when we look back, we're going to see it's perfect. It all fits together exactly as God planned. Um, and then acceptable spiritual sacrifices can only be offered by a holy priesthood. And I'm going to give you a few examples now of spiritual sacrifices from different texts and from, from 1 Peter 2. Um, and the first one is from Revelations 8, verse 3 to 4. Listen to this. It says, He was given, it's an angel. This angel was given an in, uh, much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up to God from the angel's hand. And, and the picture there is of, of sacrifice, because the, the burning of the incense and so on was part of the sacrificial system. And, and what John is saying to us here through Revelation is that our prayers are a form of spiritual sacrifice to God. Whenever you pray, you are, in a sense, making a spiritual sacrifice to God. But notice it says the prayers of the Saints. What does that word saints mean? Literally in the Greek, the word saints is the word holy. Holy ones. Hagios. Or hagioi, you know, in, in the plural. It's, it, it's, it means holy. The holy ones. So when we as holy ones, a holy priesthood, when we pray, it's a spiritual sacrifice to God coming as sweet-smelling fragrance and incense into his nostrils. I mean, sometimes when we pray, we, we do it as though it's just an, an ordinary conversation. But there's really something sacred and special about it. It's a sacrifice whenever you pray. It's precious to God. It smells good to Him, in a sense. Okay? So that's the first example. Then um, the second one, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, in, actually in, in the books of, book of Psalms, let me just um, get there, Psalm 50. I, I read this the other day and thought, wow, this is... Amazing. I'm not going to read all of the preceding, but it says, Hear, O Israel, I will, um, I will speak. This is from Psalm 50, verse 7. O, uh, o Israel, and, and testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices uh, or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of, your, uh, of a bull from your stall or, go or goats from your pens. For every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. And God says, you know, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't get hungry, but if I were, I wouldn't even tell you because everything belongs to me in any case. And then in, in verse 14 and 15, listen to this. He says, sacrifice thanks offerings to God 
Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and, will, and you will honor me. And, and what God is doing there is in, in verse 7 to 13, he's, he's mentioning the physical sacrifices which are not acceptable to, to him. And he's contrasting them in verse 14 and 15 up there to the spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to him. Saying what the main thing I desire is not a bull or a goat or something physical, physical animal to be sacrificed and burned on the altar. I want the sacrifice, I want you to sacrifice thanks offerings to me. Sacrifice thanks offerings to me. I think that should be one of the most common and persistent sacrifices that we as a holy priesthood offer to our God. Thanksgiving. In everything, give thanks. As Paul says, do you realize that when you're just walking and you see the sunrise and you're going to work and you say, God, thank you for that sunrise. Or when your child is born healthy and you say, God, thank you. Thank you that Ethan is healthy. Or when you eat food and you say, God, thank you for this food. You created it. I receive it as a blessing from you. When, when you say thank you for that, you are offering a spiritual sacrifice to God. That is acceptable to him in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says, you know, fulfill your vows to the Most High. Whenever you make a vow to God and you fulfill it, that's an offering, that's a sacrifice. It's something sacred. And all of us, there's one vow that if you're a Christian that you have made, you have said, Lord, I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. I vow to serve you. I vow to be yours. I vow, Jesus, to follow you and to obey you and to become like you. That is my vow. And whenever you do that, in whatever way, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously, subconsciously, you are, okay, not unconsciously, <laughs> you are actually offering a sacrifice, a sacred spiritual sacrifice to God by keeping that vow. When you commit yourself to serve in God's spiritual house, say, God, I'm going to be an usher, or I'm going to be in the worship team, or God, I'm going to greet people, or God, I'm, I'm going to pray beforehand, or, or God, I'm going to serve as a small group facilitator, or Lord, I'm going to be a host, and I'm going to you know, make food for people, or whatever it is. Every time you follow through on that vow, that commitment, it's a spiritual sacrifice to God that is well-pleasing to Him. Better than bulls and goats. But here's the big one. He says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Can you see? Even the day of trouble is an opportunity to offer a spiritual sacrifice to God that is pleasing to him. He says, in the day of trouble, when things go badly with you, that's an opportunity for you to make a sacrifice, an acceptable spiritual sacrifice to me. Because at that time, when things are, going, are not going well, you can call upon me. And then I can rescue you. And you can honor me. Can, can you see that, that in, in, in God's world, even the bad things become an opportunity to worship God? Even difficulties, the day of trouble, becomes an opportunity to sacrifice to God. Just think about Paul and Silas sitting in the stocks with their legs and uh, hands and feet in the stocks in, 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 in the prison dungeon and singing psalms to God in, in, in Acts chapter 16, I think. And then God getting so excited that he just breaks open the whole prison and gets the prison warden saved. 
That, that was their day of trouble, but it was an opportunity for them to call upon the Lord and honor Him as a spiritual sacrifice. I mean, so often we go through our times, why me, Lord? You're a holy priest for crying out loud. God has given you an opportunity to sacrifice to you. That is why. Embrace it. Call upon Him. Then um, notice that, that not all sacrifices are acceptable. Because it talks about spiritual sacrifice acceptable to Him. I, I'm not gonna, I, I thought I might have time to read this, but I'm not going to have time. But, but in Genesis 4, verse 3 to 7, you have Cain and Abel. Cain offered of the fruit of, of, of the ground. He was a, you know, a farmer, he planted all kinds of you know, crops or whatever. So he offered some of the crops, the fruit of the ground. But Abel offered of the firstborn. Now, Cain didn't often offer first fruit. He didn't offer the first and the best. He just offered some of the fruit. But Abel offered the firstborn and some of the fat portion, the best portions. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. And God says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And part of the doing well, there might be more to it, but part of it is Abel brought his best. Cain sort of brought, you know, just whatever didn't really cost him anything. And that kind of sacrifice, God says, is not, not acceptable. In Malachi 1 verse 8 to 10, you can go and read it yourself. God says to the priest, he says, listen here, you dishonor me. And say, well, how do we dishonor you? By bringing blind and lame and, you know, all kinds of sick animals to my altar. In other words, not bringing your best. You, you look at your, 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 your flock and you say, okay, you know, ooh, there's this ram and it's really, it's, it's a choice. I'm not going to sacrifice this. It's worth too much to me, you know. It's too precious to me. But there's a sick one that's going to die in any case. I'm going to put him on the altar. In other words, God is saying, if you're going to sacrifice to me, a sacrifice is only a sacrifice when it's a sacrifice. Right? It must cost you something. Bring your best. Okay? Um, so not, not all sacrifices. Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable. Abel's was. Uh, but there are other things as well that makes it, make it acceptable. The, the one other thing is faith. Abel sacrificed by faith. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 17 says, uh, the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. Any sacrifice that doesn't come from faith is not acceptable. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable, you see there, there's, there's that word? Acceptable sacrifice? A more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Uh, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gift. And, though, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. If you want to offer us acceptable sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice, it must be by faith. It must come from your faith. And then you'll bring your best to the Lord like Abel did. Okay, acceptable spiritual sacrifices uh, must be willing gifts, or they can be willing gifts. In, the, in, the, in both these scriptures I'm going to read now in 2 Corinthians and uh, Philippians, the words gift refer to financial giving, giving of your substance. Like we gave an, an offering this morning. Um, you can go and read the context if you want to, but in both those cases it's, it's financial giving. So 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12 says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. There's that word again. 
acceptable, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So God doesn't expect you to give more than what you have because what you have is what God has given you. God has given you what you need. He gives bread for food and he gives seed to the sower. God gives you what you need to sustain yourself and what you need to give away. But he says, if the willingness is there, so the condition for it being an acceptable sacrifice is that you give it willingly. Not grudgingly or of necessity. Not like, you know, I don't really want to give. And I'm sort of feel compelled and, and forced to give. Then it's not an acceptable spiritual sacrifice. The willingness must be there. Saying, I actually want to give. Understand, I'm giving back to God part of what he has given to me. Um, Philippians 4 verse 18 makes a similar point. It says, I have received, Paul sitting in prison writing to the, to the Philippian Christians. He says, I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So when we give financially, gifts, willingly, and we give them to God, to to, to the church and to the ministry, we actually give them as a sacrifice to God. And, And the picture is of the Old Testament. You brought your goat or whatever it was to the priest. So the priest received the goat. But he sacrificed it and it was a sacrifice to God. And God's, and Paul says, that kind of giving, that kind of willing giving, generous giving, is a spiritual sacrifice, a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. It's acceptable to Him. Uh, another one, uh, acceptable spiritual sacrifices can be spirit-sanctified converts. This is one of the most powerful ones to me. Romans 15, verse 16. Listen to this. It says, Paul says, By the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Wow. That is a powerful sacrifice. When you preach the gospel, you are fulfilling the priestly, a priestly function. When you preach the gospel and someone responds to the gospel and gets saved through the gospel, you are as a priest, like Paul, taking that person and through the gospel and by the power of the Spirit that sanctifies them, presenting them as an acceptable sacrifice, offering to God that is well-pleasing to Him. That's powerful. That is one of the most powerful sacrifices. And it says, it's the one sacrifice that gets the heavenlies going. Heaven is not quiet when that sacrifice is made. The gospel sacrifice of a soul being offered acceptably to God, but only through the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 9 says, if someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So it's when, they get, when someone gets born again, born of the Spirit, that they are actually coming up as a spiritual sacrifice, acceptable to God, pleasing to Him. I wish I had more time to spend on that. Um, you know, acceptable spiritual sacrifice includes everything in our lives, our whole lives. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, well-known portion of Scripture where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. It's a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to Him. Do not be conformed to this world. And, and, and you need to link those two scriptures. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, I mean, you've probably heard it say, said often, the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps jumping off the altar. <laughs> no one wants to be sacrificed. Not pleasant, you know. <laughs> the only way a living sacrifice can stay on the altar is if, if, if its mind is renewed. And that living sacrifice realizes for me to be sacrificed on this altar is the will of God. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. If a, if a living sacrifice's mind is not renewed, it's going to jump off the altar the whole time. And we are living sacrifices. In fact, your whole life, you can offer your body, everything you do in your body, as a living sacrifice to God, acceptable to Him, a spiritual act of worship. Uh, acceptable spiritual sacrifices must be through Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 15 to 16 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Can you see that? Your words... Your words of praise to Jesus in the name of Jesus, through Jesus. Remember, offering spiritual, holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay? It says, through Jesus, offer up continually. In other words, as a lifestyle, living sacrifice. Your body a living sacrifice. Offer continually sacrifice of praise and do good and share. So, praise what you say. In his name, and doing good and sharing what you do in his name. All of that are all of those are sacrifices pleasing to God. Every time we do that, every time we worship him with music or without music, it's an offering of praise. Every time we do good to someone. Um, a precious brother yesterday came and um, fixed our gate, which was broken, all the bolts and stuff had had gone loose and so on, and I'm not the best handyman in the world. And he, he noticed it when he, you know, came to visit us earlier in the week, and he, he uh, came and, you know, with his drill and stuff, and he fixed our gate. Big blessing to us. Big blessing to me. Spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. He was, by doing good to me, he was offering to God. Acceptable spiritual sacrifice must be in word and in deed. Um, 1 Peter, I'm almost done. Uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Live such good lives as living sacrifices who have offered their bodies as living sacrifices, who live and offer continually good works before God. Live such good lives. Not just offering spiritual sacrifices here and there, in between, you know, that sort of punctuate your life. Your whole life, live such good lives as spiritual sacrifices. Now, what happens when you live such good lives? Everyone like, whoa, I'm so impressed with you. No. (laughs) 
No, the world's going to look at that spiritual sacrifice, that good that you are doing, and the good that you are living, and what are they going to say? They're going to accuse you of doing wrong. Don't expect when you offer acceptable sacrifices to God that they will be acceptable to the world. They will not be acceptable to the world. They will accuse you of doing wrong. They will slander you falsely. But in the end, they will not be able to deny that God is doing something in you. Now, here's the thing, you know, if you're a businessman or a professional or, you know, you've got, you're an entrepreneur, you've got your own business or whatever, how do you do your business as a Christian? How do you offer what you're doing in your business as a spiritual sacrifice to God? I mean, obviously you need to be honest, you need to have integrity, you need to do, serve others and do it in love and so on, but, but is that enough? I mean, you could do work in a Christian way that when someone sees it, they'll say, wow, this guy is honest, I'm really impressed with him, and they'll glorify you and not God. What do you need to do so that they will not glorify you but glorify God? You cannot just do the right thing in the right way, right? It must be accompanied by what verse 9 says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Just doing good, doing the right thing in the right way is not enough. You've got to actually talk about what you're doing and saying, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for God. Because then they will not glorify you, they'll glorify God. You need to say, you know, I'm really battling with this. I'm actually, I'm going to pray about this and ask that God will help me. And then when God does help you, they say, well, <laughs> he couldn't do it. But somehow when he prayed about it, all of a sudden things started to fall into place. It must be his God. Go read the story of Joseph. Joseph's servant tells Joseph's brothers that Joseph's God is with him. How did Joseph's servant, an Egyptian, know about Joseph's God? Joseph did not just do the right thing. He didn't just work hard. He wasn't just a good manager and a good steward. He spoke about what he did. When, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he said, how can I do this evil and sin against my God? He spoke about his God in the workplace. Even to his wife's boss. Okay. Um, I just want to end off with this thing. This, this spiritual sacrifice thing can sound like a real sacrifice. It might sound like, oh, this is hard. You know, how can I do that? Um, I, I don't have time to go into it in depth. But in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 10, he says, you know, those who, who have not received mercy will, will receive mercy. Once you did not receive mercy, you, but now you've received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you're a people. It's, it, those are allusions to, to Hosea 1 and 2. If you know the story of, of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And God told him to marry uh, um, a lady of questionable um, ethical and moral, moral repute and, and sort of um, makeup, knowing that she would do what she eventually did. So Isaiah married her. And, you know, as a prophet, he probably had you know, people that he was ministering to. And you can just imagine you know, him marrying this lady and his congregation sort of saying, you know, are you sure, brother? <laughs> <laughs> I 
are, are you really sure this is the right one? He said, God told me marry her. And lo and behold, he has three children, you know, and they, they're called No Mercy, <laughs> Not My People, and I can't remember what the third one's name, are like horrible names. Um, and eventually this woman, Gomer, leaves Hosea and actually starts committing adultery with other men. And eventually, because it, go, it goes really badly with her, she eventually sells herself into slavery as a prostitute. And she becomes a prostitute. Imagine Hosea preaching on Saturday, on the Sabbath, or whenever he preaches, and the congregation sort of walking by and saying, Ish, brother, remember we told you. <laughs> She's out plying her business. And all his enemies probably, you know, having a field day and saying, go and tell the prophet, we, we paid a few, you know, pieces of silver and, and, and you know, we, we uh, ministered to his wife. <laughs> Imagine how embarrassing that must have been to him. And then you know what God says to him? He says, go back. Go and buy your wife who sold herself into slavery as a prostitute. Go buy her back and make her your wife again. And Hosea does that. He takes all the shame. He makes the sacrifice. He pays for her. He buys. The woman who is his wife, he buys her back. She didn't have to pay for her, but he buys her back to be his own. He ignores the shame of being associated with her. And he makes her his wife again. And God says, I'm telling you to do that because that is what I do with my people all the time. They are like Gomer. They sell themselves into prostitution. And I come and I buy them back. And I make them my own. In other words, here's the point. It's Jesus' sacrifice for us and the shame he took for us. The sacrifice he makes for us in buying us back that enables us to sacrifice. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Christ. That is what gives us the power. That is what inspires us to do it. It's because he has done it for us. We are Gomer. We sell ourselves into prostitution. We prostitute ourselves with the world. And he comes and he buys us back. And he loves us again. Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. That you are so gracious to us. That at grace cost to yourself, you sacrifice to make us your own again. To buy us out of the cesspool of this world. Out of the captivity of this world that we get ourselves into. And that you again make us your own. Make us your wife. And that you love us again as though we had never sinned against you. Thank you God for your grace. Thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you that your sacrifice enables us to sacrifice. And Lord we pray Lord that our whole lives will be a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to you in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to see how we live as sacred. Help us to see our relationships and our friendships and our service to one another as sacred. Help us to see our sacrificing for our families as sacred. Help us to see our jobs and what we do from nine to five as sacred. Help us to see everything as an opportunity to make a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to you in Christ Jesus. And help the world to be changed by it. 
In Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that you will be glorified as we sacrifice to you.